So today is a little bit of a bittersweet Sunday in the sense that we conclude our study after two years in Mark. We started the study in January of 2022, and we finish our study in Mark uh, this Sunday. Uh, we've watched and followed uh, closely, as closely as we can, the, the life of Jesus through Mark, our wonderful uh, servant, Savior. And today we close with the resurrection and our response to what we have been through. Uh, last week, you remember, we were in Mark chapter 15, and we saw Jesus being crucified, uh, him beaten, uh, all for the purpose of reconciling us back to God for the possibility of the forgiveness of sins, of taking a sinful world and a holy God and bridging those things together on our behalf, uh, that we can enjoy a relationship with God because of Jesus' work on the cross. After he's crucified, Joseph of Arimathea asked to have his body. He takes the body off the cross. They take the body off the cross. Joseph Arimathea wraps the body in a cloth and puts him in a tomb. And that's where we end the story uh, in chapter 15. And this morning we pick up three days later in chapter 16, looking at Jesus and the resurrection. So before we go to the resurrection in Mark chapter 16, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for these past two years where we have opened up this gospel of Mark that gave us an insight uh, into the life of Jesus. And not only did it give it a li- uh, an insight in the life of Jesus, it also gave us an insight into our lives. And how closely we follow and how much we want to be like Jesus. So God, I pray this morning as we conclude this series that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth. That by your spirit that you would... Help us understand and grasp how deep and how wide your love is for us in the person of Jesus. And not only that we would hear it in our minds and and, and embrace it in our hearts, but that we would live it out by the power of your Spirit. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you, beside you, that they would hear from the Lord and respond to him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, the title of the message is Our Response. It's kind of the so what, as I mentioned last week, of our study in Jesus, and more particularly, uh, specifically, our response to the resurrection of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 16. We're going to read two verses and stop there, and then we'll move forward after that. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene... And Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Two Marys were at the cross of the crucifixion. They saw him uh, beaten. They saw him die. They left in darkness, and now they come three days later in darkness to the tomb. Remember, it was early in the morning. It was still dark. A lot of times when we read this passage, we think of our sunrise service on the beach. We come to the beach when it's dark. We leave when it's light. And we come in this understanding of what the the lady's going to, the tomb. There's fear. There's expectations. There's all these things swirling around them, and yet they come to the tomb. And they come out of a a devotion to anoint Jesus' body with oil and spices. 
as we continue through this chapter, I want us to look at the resurrection and its power and its impact and what it proclaims in our response to it. Verses, six, uh, verses 3 through 6 say this. So they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the, the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the, tomb, uh, the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, behold, here is the place where they laid him. These two ladies come out as an act of devotion, out as an act of custom, out as an act of love to anoint the body. And they are nervous, and they are asking this question, who's going to roll away the stone? Josh McDowell said this, After over 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoax ever forced on the minds of men, or is the most fantastic fact in history. Which is it for you? The most fantastic fact of history, I hope. Christianity stands or falls on the truth and the proclamation of the resurrection. Everything, everything hinges on the resurrection. The resurrection then changes everything. Think about it. If you admit the resurrection, then all Christianity makes sense. But if you deny the resurrection, then Christianity makes no sense and has no foundation at all. In fact, if you can dispose of the resurrection somehow, then you can defeat Christianity. But if if the resurrection is true and you cannot dispose of it, then you have to deal with the fact of its truth and what it proclaims. Now this week as I was studying the message, I, I was looking at Acts chapter 1 verse 3 where it says this, To these he, Jesus, also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. This phrase in Acts, this, this phrase that says convincing proofs, it also is translated infallible, without doubt, without hesitation, without mistake, that there were convincing proofs that Jesus was alive, that there was a resurrection. And he convinced the disciples without any shadow of a doubt, with infallible evidence, that he had risen from the dead. Think about that. What message, what other kind of message would have motivated them to do the things they did after the resurrection if the resurrection wasn't true? It was convincing proof to them, and they believe it. Resurrection proclaimed victory over death. Now, I want us to understand a little bit about what these ladies saw when they first got to the tomb. The first thing is this. All four of the Gospels talk about the stone being rolled away from the tomb. Now, I want you to just get this visual picture in your mind just for a second. That this tomb, that the stone rolled away and it's empty. Without even using any words, that is a powerful proclamation. Jesus is alive. He's not there. Now, remember on the way to the tomb, there was a lot of uh, anxious, worry, fear among the ladies. 
lots of different reasons why uh, the Jewish people were, were over the top watching every move. There was fear about what was going on, swirling around. And they get to the tomb, and it says in verse 4 that it was a heavy stone, and it was rolled away. How did that happen? Well, Matthew chapter 28, verses 2 and 3 say that. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, stepped forward, rolled away the stone, and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his garments like white as snow. So the question becomes, why did God send down an angel to step forward and roll away the tomb. Why did he do that? What is God trying to tell us in that? Was it so Jesus could come out? Remember in John chapter 20, disciples sitting in the upper room, doors closed and locked, and it says Jesus appeared to them. So he could have passed right out through that heavy stone, right? So why did God send the angel to move the stone? The stone rolled away was not a means for Jesus' exit. It was a means of our entrance. What does the angel say? Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He's not here. He's been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Then what does he say? Behold. Behold. Now, now I got off on a tangent this week on this word, behold. This word behold is powerful, and it's also a theme throughout the scriptures. In fact, one author and commentator says that it is the theme throughout all of scripture. It's used over 1,500 times in scripture, particularly in the New Testament. Behold. Behold. The stone rolled away was not so Jesus could come out. It's so that we could go in and behold. Now, this word behold is not just a glance. It's not just a peeking in. It means come in and see, experience it, embrace it, behold it, make it yours. Behold it. The stone rolled away is an invitation for us to experience and participate in the resurrection. Now, there's a second proclamation that the angel gives. This message from the angel in verse 5 says they saw a young man sitting in white uh, on the right wearing a white robe and they were amazed. This white robe and a young man all through particularly the New Testament, uh, even in the Old Testament, uh, means there's, it was a messenger of God, which is an angel. Now this word amazed has with it, uh, within it a couple of different uh, meanings. This word amazed could mean wonder, but it's also mixed with fear. So it's fear and wonder and amazement. It also means that there's astonishment and distress. So the angel says to these astonished, distressed, fearful, and amazed women, do not be fearful, do not be amazed, do not be distressed. It's interesting how the angel does two things. One, he addresses their fear. Do not be amazed. Do not be distressed. And then he gives them the hope. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Lastly, there's other convincing proofs. Over um, uh, Jesus appears a, a number of different times throughout the New Testament. Uh, we see it in Luke chapter 24 in the road to Emmaus with the two there. 
Uh, in John chapter 20, verse uh, 19 through 25, he appears to the 10 disciples. A week later, he appears again in John 20 to the 11 that were there. Matthew 28, John 21, 1 Corinthians 15, he appears to James and the other apostles. And then it says he appears to hundreds. Convincing proofs that the resurrection is real. But the question this morning is, is it real for you? Do you behold, do you resonate, do you embrace Jesus' resurrection? The second thing I want to look at this morning is not only the proof, but what the proof promises for us. Listen to verses 7 through and 8. But go, the angel said, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Within these 40 days, if you unpack Jesus and his time with different people, there are three things that kind of stand out about what he did then and what he does now in regards to his promises. And the first thing we see that Jesus does for his people is that he comforts them. He comforts them. Their hearts were troubled. They were gripped by fear. They were gripped by anxiety. They were, they were un, the fear and unknown had gripped them. And Jesus comforts them. Have you ever been there? Where you've needed Jesus to comfort you. That's the promise of the resurrection. There's a second thing that Jesus does when he appears to people after the resurrection. He convinces them. How many of you have ever been confused? just me anybody ever been confused about life about people about relationships about situations life is confusing in the midst of all that we go through life can be so harried and confused and jesus promises out of the resurrection that he can convince us that he's trustworthy that in the midst of everything that we're experiencing we can trust him and he convinces us of that because of the power of the resurrection. But not only does he comfort us, not only does he convince us, he also commissions us like he did the disciples. He commissioned them by giving them the work they were to do after he was gone. And he does the same thing for us. Five different occasions he appeared to them and commanded them to carry out the work which he had started in them so they could do it through so he could do it through them verse 7 the angel gives this very important command he says he says but go tell his disciples and disciples and peter that he is going before you into galilee there you will see him and he as he said to you now i love specifically how they include peter after peter's denied him three times he said make sure you bring peter along with you and what we see is this after they are comforted after they are commissioned after they are convinced and they are commissioned, we see transformed lives. They embrace it. They behold the resurrection. And what happens? They respond to it, to the mission and work of God. Listen to what Owen author said. The transformed lives of people from every people group, every race, every age group, every profession on the face of the earth who allow, who follow Jesus Christ and give their lives to him are a living testimony that Jesus is alive and out of the grave. This is what we need to be aware of this morning and embrace. 
that if you have received Jesus as your Savior, that if you have beheld the story and person of Jesus, the gospel, and said yes to him, you are a living testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An infallible, convincible proof that Jesus is alive. That's who you are. And Jesus sends them out with that truth to be a witness. A witness of what? A witness of the infallible proof of the resurrection. That's who you are as a believer. Listen to the words from Paul in Romans chapter 8 from the message. I love this. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him and whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if, we, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus bringing you alive to himself when god lives and breathes in you and he does just as surely as he did in jesus you are delivered from the from that dead life with the spirit living in you your body will be as alive as christ's the resurrection changes everything it changes everything about me and it changes how i look at you and how i feel about you and what i want for you it, it the resurrection changes my motives. It changes my priorities. It changes everything about me. It's the resurrection of Jesus. And we've all heard it said, and maybe we've said it ourselves, I don't know what they would do without Jesus. And what we're really saying is this. I don't know what they would do without the hope and power and the promise of the resurrection. People all around us need to identify with Christ's death so that they can appreciate and live in Christ's life. It brings us to the last part of Mark's gospel, our response to Jesus. Listen to these final verses from Mark. Verses 9 through 20. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And after that, he appeared in a different form of, to two of them while walking, while they were walking along their way to the country. They went away and reported it to others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves. As they were reclining at the table, he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go to, to, to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. They, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them, uh, sent out through them from the east and west, sacred and perishable proclamation of eternal salvation. 
Now, I need to make a disclaimer about these last few verses of Mark chapter 16. In Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 is probably one of the most difficult passages in all the New Testament. The problem with this text is whether or not it belongs in Mark's gospel as part of the original book of Mark. Now, in some of your Bibles, you may have seen where there's a bracket in front of verse 9, and there's a bracket at the end of verse 20, and then also there's a, an italics or something at the very end. In addition, you may see the things that scholars uh, began to see, is that the language, the, the content, seems different than the rest of the gospel. And so there's evidence to support that we're not 100% sure if this uh, last few verses were actually written by Mark. There's some evidence that says that the, that the language is different. Remember how we talk about all through Mark, how Mark goes, and then this happened, and then this happened, and there was this verb, and then there was that verb, and then there was this happening. Well, we don't find that in these last parts. Also, the Greek connotations, the content, the characteristics, all those things point that it may not have been Mark that wrote the gospel. So there's some people that think that there's a short book of Mark, and then there's a long book of Mark. So the question probably comes up, if these verses were not part of the original book, it may not have been written by Mark, why are they in our Bibles? Well, scholars believe, translators believe, that at the first and second century, that it, if we ended Mark where they thought Mark ended it, it would be different. And, and here's why. Mark would end with verse 8. Now think about our two-year study after all the things we looked at in two years with Jesus, and this is how the book would have ended. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment. They gripped them, and they said nothing to no one, for they were afraid. The end. That's not how the book ends. That's not how the story of Jesus ends. So scholars and translators, if it was Mark's or if it was other uh, writers, put this in to complete the canon of the New Testament. At the end of all this, and there's lots of different viewpoints on it. At the end of all this, my main point of making the disclaimer is this. Is that theologians and scholars that I think I agree with put this in here as an infallible rule of practice to the Christian life. There's nothing contrary to the other 66 books in the Bible. And so therefore we can read this passage with all confidence knowing that it's reliable and credible and useful and godly living. So with that being said, let's look at verse 9 through 13, thinking about the resurrection and people's disbelief. Now if you look at this, you'll see that Mary and the two went out and they uh, told him about Jesus being alive and they didn't believe him. Reports the resurrection to the disciples who were mourning and weeping. They were sad, they were fearful, they were hiding. Now you would think that if you were sad and fearful and hiding, the first thing that you would want to hear is a word of hope. That Jesus, who I thought was dead, is now alive. But that's not how they heard it. Verse 11 says that they refused to believe it. Luke reports, but these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe it. So the first report of Jesus being alive to his closest friends doesn't fall on believing ears. Why? Why did they not believe? Here's a principle. Here's the reason why. Their grief was outweighing their truth. Have you ever been there? Where your grief and the confusion and the hurt and the pain seems so much heavier than the truth that's in front of you. Uh, during between services, somebody came up to me and said, Matthew, glance at your problems and stare at God. 
That's a good one to live by. The disciples were staring at their problems and just glancing at Jesus. Among the disciples, among the religious leaders, among other people, there was this, this culture of doubt. They just didn't believe. And what's interesting is once they believed, everything changed. Once the women believed, they went and told. Once the disciples believed that they went and told. Once the two on the road to Emmaus believed, they went and told. There was a response after they believed it. Those who have not experienced it for themselves, there is still this disbelief, and therefore there's no response to it. And so the understanding is people need to experience Christ as his, uh, and his resurrection power for themselves in order for their hearts and lives to be changed. And so I ask this morning, has there been a time where you've experienced Christ and the power of his resurrection, and has your life been changed? In verses 14 through 16, we see that the disciples of commission, Jesus shows up in verse 14, and in verse 15, we hear the commission. Now, this is the same parallel great commission that we find in Matthew chapter 28. It's kind of more famous, it's a little bit more popular, but it's the same commission. And he gives this mission not only to the disciples, but to the church, to me and you. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, this two verses could be really a whole series. So I'm going to take out a few words and unpack them for us. The first word is this word go. This word go. And he said to them, go. Go has two distinct implications. The first one is, is that it is a command to go, to move out of this room and go. To go is a conscious decision to move from one place to another place. You can't stay here, guys. You got to leave. That was the message to the disciples, and that's the message to us this morning. We can't stay here. We have to go. It's a command. We leave church on Sunday morning, and we go to our communities. We go to our neighborhoods. But there's also this other connotation in the word go, and it's as you are going. As it's been said, the first is a command to go, an action. The second is a command of awareness. That as you're going, as you're being a mom, as you're being a dad, as you're being a student, as you're being a, uh, uh, an employee, an employer, as you're going, you are aware. Aware of what? To people to preach the gospel. That's the second verb, this word preach. How, how many of you have anybody in your life that preach at you? In the first service, all the guys raised their hand. <laughs> anybody have anybody preach at you? What to do? How to do? When to do? How to think? When to think? When to talk? When not to talk? You starting to get it? People preach at you? <laughs> this word preach is to proclaim. Uh, to speak, to get it out. But it's not this understanding of I'm going to get my soapbox and preach to you about what I think needs to happen in our world, about this group of people, about that group of people, about politics, about economics. It's not, about, it's not preaching that. What does it say? 
we preach, we proclaim the good news, the gospel. I've always loved this quote. Some people hate it, but hopefully if you're one of those, then maybe you'll like it just a little bit after I explain it. Preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. I've always loved this quote. It doesn't mean that you don't ever talk. It just means this, that your life is to preach the gospel. Your actions, your behaviors, the way you treat people. Because you and I have both found that actions actually speak louder than words. And our actions preach long before we ever open our mouths. And so our lives must be congruent with what we say. Frederick Buechner would say, let your life speak. Let your life preach. We preach what? The gospel. Now, some of your versions may have, in verse 15, the good news. If I were to ask you, or if you were to ask the people around your circles in your life, and ask them this question, what is the gospel? What would they say? How would they define it? How would they articulate it? Let me tell you what the gospel is not. The gospel is not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is not that if you come to God, you will have a wonderful purpose for your life. The gospel is not my personal thoughts about how great I think God is. And some of you are looking at me like, I thought that might be what it is. Those are things that are uh, results of the gospel. All these have true components and actually are results and blessings that come after the gospel. But the gospel is the announcement and proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel is a person. The gospel is Jesus. That's why Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Your life and my life is to preach Jesus. To who? All of creation. In, in the Greek, it is emphatic. It is, it is a heavy all. It, it means that we are to preach and speak to people who we don't like. Anybody you don't like? You're supposed to preach to them. Preach what? Jesus. To people who don't share our same views. To people who just rub us the wrong way. We preach Jesus to them. This word all is an emphatic, inclusive all. The lovely, the unlovely, the clean, the dirty, those who you like, those who you don't like. Those who you think you like find out you really don't like them that's why we do foreign and domestic all people all of them have the right to hear from me the good news of jesus so here's a great question is there anyone who should not have the privilege of hearing about that and the opportunity to respond to the greatest man who ever lived and about the greatest love story ever told. Is there anybody who doesn't deserve to hear that? 
all of creation. And I'm sure that when I mention someone needing to hear the gospel or return to the gospel, I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that you have somebody in mind. That you have this deep longing for this person or that person to be changed by the power of the gospel. And I just want to tell you, keep praying. Don't give up on God's work in their life. Ours is to go, to preach, to everyone, and trust God with the results of that. Verses 17 and 18 tell the telltale signs. Some of you are going, Matthew, just get to the snake part and hurry. Verses 17 and 18, these signs will accompany those who believed in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and they will drink any deadly poison that will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Jesus mentions five different uh, signs here that accompany, notice the verse in verse 17, that will accompany those who believe. This is not about a testing of their faith, it's about an accompanying of the Holy Spirit's power in a person's life. That's what Jesus is talking about the telltale signs of. That these signs will be signs of power that you receive. What kind of power? The power of the resurrection. You'll cast out demons. You'll speak in tongues. You'll pick up serpents. You'll, you'll do all this stuff out of my power. It's a design to show the power of Jesus. Scholars have argued, and I believe that Jesus, I believe, is showing this metaphor, that Jesus was using this metaphor, teaching the power of Jesus and the defeating of Satan. Satan doesn't have the power. Jesus does. It was a sign common among the apostles in the first century. We read about all that in Acts. And what was it to do? To testify of the power of the resurrection. Now, people have taken that out of context and use it for all kinds of different reasons. But the underlying point, the overall emphasis, is to show the power of God that accompanies those who believe. That you and I, as believers, have the resurrection power residing in us. The resurrection power of Jesus. Verse 20 says that he gave us all that to give us the power uh, to display the power of God. Verses 19 and 20, and I'll close with this. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Two great truths in this. He's going away, but he's staying with us. Sounds like contradicting, doesn't it? The first thing is this. After spending several weeks with the disciples, he was taken up to heaven and he sat down in his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Now notice to something about this. At the right hand of the Father, the right hand of a, of a king was a, a place of honor. But notice this, that he sat down. That he sat down. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, it doesn't say Jesus was standing beside God? Or Jesus was walking around in heaven? It says he sat down. Now I want to illustrate this. In, in the Old Testament, when the temple was being built, which was incredible, it took over 60 years to build the temple. And in this temple, if you take inflation into account, it could be up to a billion dollars to build this temple. But in the temple, there was not one chair designed for the high priest. 
No place to sit down, certainly in the Holy of Holies. And the reason is significant because the high priest knew that there was always continuing work to do in the ideas of sacrifice, the ideas of carrying out their priestly duties. But when Jesus, who is our high priest, notice this, finished his work, he sat down because he completed it once and for all. There was no more sacrifices anymore. He had accomplished it. And the second truth we see in these last verses is that they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Concerning his human nature, Jesus is no longer present with us. But concerning his divine nature, Jesus is never absent from us. Jesus remains with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. At the end of 16, most scholars look at the manuscripts of Mark, and it ends with this word, Amen, so be it, this is the truth. So if this is the truth, I want to ask you a couple of questions. As a believer, do you recognize that you have been called and commissioned to share the gospel? Just like the disciples in the upper room, you have to leave here. You've got to go. Can't stay here all day, right? You've got to go. Are you going to go in the power of the resurrection into your neighborhoods and school? I want to ask you to to ask yourself this question, do I feel, do I believe that the gospel, that sharing the gospel is a mandate or a privilege? Is it optional or am I going to be obedient with joy? Second question I want to leave you with is do you understand that as you go and preach that you're never alone, that Jesus is always with you? This morning I close our study in Mark with a, uh, with a commentary who summarized it this way. Let's continue to move from spectators and recipients to participants in the gospel of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, this morning I thank you for the study this past two years in the gospel of Mark. You've given us great insight. So many different things that maybe we didn't recognize or see before. God, that through it all, I pray that we have become closer that we've fallen deeper in love with Jesus and that our hearts are committed to follow closer and closer. And God, I pray that if anybody's here this morning that has never, ever received Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, that there's never been a time of confession and a repentance and an understanding and a recognition of, of embracing and beholding the work of Jesus on the cross so that we can be forgiven to have the enjoyment and pleasure of being at peace with you, both now and for all eternity. God, I pray this is the morning that they would behold you, that they would embrace you, experience you. God, send us out here, out of here, with the understanding to go and to preach with our lives and with our words the person of Jesus. And we'll give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.